Well, I read an amazing story this past week. I wanted to share it with you this morning as we begin a new series. <clears throat> you may not have known this, but every year, uh, Australia hosts what is known as an ultra marathon. It's not a normal marathon. It's called an ultra marathon. It's called the Sydney to Melbourne Endurance Race. Now, a common marathon is 26 miles long. The Sydney to Melbourne Marathon is, get this, 543 miles long. It would be the equivalent of running from Chicago to Omaha. It's considered among the world's most grueling ultra marathons. The race takes five days to complete, and it's normally only attempted by world-class athletes who train specifically for this event. These athletes are typically under 30 years old and backed by large companies such as Nike. Well, in 1983, they had the first Sydney to Melbourne race, and a man named Cliff Young showed up at the start of this race. Cliff was 61 years old, and he showed up wearing overalls and work boots. He's a potato farmer. To everyone's shock, Cliff wasn't there to be a spectator. He picked up his race number, put on his sneakers, and joined the other racers at the starting line. The press and the other athletes told him, You're crazy! There's no way you can finish this race. To which he replied, Yes, I can. I grew up on a farm where we couldn't afford horses or tractors. Frequently, I'd have to go out and round up the sheep. He said, We had 2,000 sheep on 2,000 acres. Sometimes I would have to run those sheep for two or three days on end. Took a long time, but I'd always catch them. So I believe I could run this race. Well, they let the man enter the race. When the race started, the professionals quickly left Cliff behind. The crowds in the television audience were entertained because Cliff didn't even run properly. He appeared to more shuffle than jog, and many were even afraid for the old farmer's safety. All the professional athletes knew that it took five days to finish the race, so they ran for 18 hours, and then all the runners stopped for six hours of sleep. When they woke up the next morning, everyone was surprised to find out that not only was Cliff still in the race, he ran straight through the night. He didn't get a minute of sleep. He just thought he would keep running. When they asked him why he hadn't stopped, to everyone's disbelief, he claimed that he would run straight through to the finish line without needing any sleep. Well, day after day, Cliff kept running. Day one, day two, day three, and each night he came a little closer to the leading pack. And by the final night, he had surpassed all of the young world-class athletes. He then, on the fifth day, was the first competitor to cross the finish line, therefore setting a new record for running between those distances. When Cliff was awarded the winning prize of $10,000, his eyes lit up and he said he didn't even know there was a prize. <laughs> so he didn't take it. He distributed, distributed it to the other runners who finished after him. Cliff's story was so moving that it was featured on a television special as one of 20 moments that stopped Australia. Cliff was an inspiration. He was an example. In the end, he was a champion. And it was all because he ran with endurance. We're starting a new series this morning. And in one word, the series is about endurance. You see, one of the several metaphors the Bible uses to describe your walk with Christ is it's like a race. It's like a lot of things, but one of the main metaphors is it's like a race. And, and it's not like a sprint. It's like an ultra-grueling marathon. 
And the race demands endurance. So to help us run this race and to help us finish well, God has placed a very special chapter in the New Testament. It's referred to as the Hall of Faith. And in this one chapter, we find a list of Old Testament saints, and each of them ran what we would call an amazing race. And their lives now serve as examples to us. Their faith gives us motivation and gives us focus and gives us encouragement to run our race well, to finish our race well. So here's the next series. We're going to spend the next year in the, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, hearing the greatest stories found in the Old Testament. The series is called Running with the Giants. The goal of the series is this. Each time a name comes up in Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to go back into the Old Testament, hear the stories, the greatest stories found there, so that we can then come back into the New Testament with encouragement to run our race with endurance. We're going to cover 25 people in the next 12 months. We're going to spend a week with Noah. We're going to spend four weeks with Abraham. We'll spend time with Moses and Joshua and David and Elijah and Daniel and Esther and Nehemiah and many more. Hey, I am fired up to preach this series. It is going to be every week. It's going to be awesome. I think God laid this series on my heart because God's people need encouragement. And this is the chapter to find it. Here's the theme verse. Uh, we're going to put it up there, Hebrews 12, 1-2, which actually serves as like a summary of the whole chapter 11. So let's read this together. Ready? Here we go. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's the theme verse. But this morning, we're going to take an introductory look at the book of Hebrews. There's two preliminary questions that we have to answer this morning. They'll show us why the book of Hebrews was written, and they'll get us ready for what's found in chapter 11. Two questions are very basic. First one is, why should I live for Christ? The second one is, how do I live for Christ? Let's pray And then we'll talk through this introductory message. Father in heaven, I know that you're not just holy, you're not just sovereign, you're not just mighty. You are good and you are loving. So I'm grateful that Hebrews 11 is in the New Testament. Father, so many in this room right now need encouragement to keep running. Father, many in this room have no idea what will come their way this year year. But I believe you've led me into this book so that you could encourage your people through your word, so that you can give them encouragement so that they can run perseverance. Lord, we commit this entire series up to you. Speak through me and speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles up to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. We don't know who the author is to the book of Hebrews. And the book was likely written between A.D. 60 and 70 um, and uh, before the temple was destroyed. We know the audience was Jewish believers who were tremendously discouraged. Right? So just imagine for a moment, imagine, Brandon, that we're kind of like brothers, right? And, and I'm a new Jewish Christian, and you're not quite all there yet. So I'm like, Jesus is awesome. And you're like, Moses is better. And I'm like, 
And then not only that, but like we go to mom, and mom is like, Jesus was a heretic. Stop going to that church. Where does that put me? I'm all torn in all these different directions, and I'm getting discouraged. So the first question here is, why should I live for Christ? But listen, don't think this is a non-believer asking. This is a believer asking. I'm discouraged. I'm worn out. I'm trying. Why should I live for Christ? This is not worth it anymore. Maybe that's you right now. And it's fascinating where the author starts. To the Christian struggling to persevere in the race, the very first chapter reminds the Christian who Jesus is. Why should I live for Christ? Well, look at Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. It says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Hey, All of this begins with this question. Why, why should I live for Christ? Answer, let me give you a reminder of who Christ is. The first thing that's said here is long ago, many times and in many ways, who spoke? What does it say here? Who spoke? Okay, a little louder. Who spoke? God spoke. When you read the Old Testament, this is our doctrine of inspiration. You're not reading the words of man. You're reading God speaking, but He gave us His Word through human authors. So God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And it was at many times, and it was in many ways. So maybe you're like, well, God's never said anything to me. Well, God's never told me it. Wrong and wrong. Because God has been speaking from Eden. He's been speaking. How? Many times, many ways, it's found in book form. How did he speak? Well, he spoke over a 1,500-year period. He used over 40 authors at many times, in many ways. He would either talk directly to individuals, or sometimes he would talk through his representatives. So he could speak from heaven and cause Sinai to shake, or he could speak through Moses and cause Pharaoh to fear for his life. He could speak through the prophets, which are not just words of men, but words of God. Hey, if we're not hearing God speak, it's because we're not listening to His Word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke. Hey, Brandon, bro, man, you're awesome. Love you. I know, you know, you're right. Bible says it. Moses was amazing. God spoke through him. But, in these last days, categoric shift in biblical chronology. Something chronologically changed when Christ came. We are now in what the Bible calls the last days. In these last days, He, he has spoken to us by His Son. Categorically different messenger. Not representative recruited from among humanity. Messenger sent down from deity. He was God the Son who entered into the world. My Son, 
I have sent to you. Totally different messenger. Therefore, what we find out here is Jesus is not just the next on the list of prophets. There's none after him who could surpass him. He was completely different. Jot this down. Why should I live for Christ? Well, first, Jesus is God revealing himself to me. Jesus is God. He's God the Son revealing himself to me. We have to therefore see that Jesus is the supreme and final revelation of God. He's the culmination of all prior revelation. He's the complete and full disclosure of God himself. And he's the final fulfillment of God's unfolding plan to save humanity from sin and death. Think of it this way. Imagine we had a big sign on the stage. It was like, it's like this big arrow, a big, bright, blinking arrow. And the Bible describes it as like the Old Testament. Each person in the Old Testament is like one bulb in the sign. Okay, Moses and Abraham, they're like one bulb in the sign that forms one big flashing arrow that points to, guess who? Jesus. Jesus isn't just one more bulb. He's what the whole Old Testament was pointing to. And you pick any verse in the Old Testament and God's doing something there to get the world ready for Christ to come. The New Testament is really just God getting the world ready for Christ to come again. It's that simple. But Jesus is different. He is God revealing himself to me. Luke 2.11 says, Unto you this day is born a what? A Savior. Why should I live for Christ? Well, he is the fulfillment of God disclosing himself. Okay, I'm not quite convinced yet. Remind me about the rest of what is true about Christ. Well, look at verse 2. It says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Jot this down. Jesus is the rightful owner of everything. The Bible teaches Jesus is the rightful owner of everything. Maybe you came in this morning and your beliefs about Jesus were a little foggy. I'm not sure who he is. Maybe he's like a... You know, a great teacher, like, you know, Confucius. I'm not, the Bible is crystal clear. Listen, it just said Jesus is the heir, the owner of everything. I read an article a few years ago. The headline read, Woman Claims to Own the Sun. Saturday, November 27th, Angelus Duran, a woman from Spain, has laid claim to the sun. She argues that there's no international law to prevent her action. 49 years old, she said she told the online edition of uh, the Daily El Mundo she took the step in September after reading about an American man who had registered himself as the owner of the moon and most planets in our solar system. Not wanting to lose her opportunity, she seized it. She said there's an international agreement which states that no country may claim ownership of a planet or star, but it says nothing about individuals. She said, there was no snag. I backed my claim legally. I'm not stupid. I know the law. I did it, but anybody else could have done it. She now owns the sun. Hey, do you think that's crazy? Do you think that's crazy? I think that's kind of a crazy thing. William, if you said, I own the sun, I'd be like, dude, you need counseling. Okay, we're going to hook you up. Listen, Jesus owns everything. Everything in the universe, everything in the world, everything you are, everything you have, it's all his stuff. Jesus is the rightful owner of everything. 
Therefore, heaven is his real estate, and he holds your eternity in the palm of his hands because he is the heir of everything. Why should I live for Christ? Why should I keep living for him? I'm... Hey, he's the rightful owner of everything in the universe. All right, look at what it goes on to say. It says, in whom he's appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. All right, write this down. Uh, Jesus assembled my world. Jesus assembled my world. The Bible just declared that Jesus created the entire universe. I don't know about you, but that sounds a little far-fetched. It, like, are we getting a little too worked up about this Jesus person? Um, I'll never forget when I went for my first interview as a teacher. I sat there and I, I learned a trick on the internet, which was new back then, that it's good to interview the interviewer. So uh, we sat down and I was like, well, what do you expect of a new teacher? And she looked at me, I'll never forget this, and she said, I want to be dazzled. And I was like, I left my tap shoes at home. I don't know how I'm... Apparently I didn't dazzle her because I didn't get the job. But, But listen, I want you to be dazzled by what you hear about Jesus Christ. And the Bible just said he put the entire universe together. Okay, I had trouble putting a crib together. Like I actually got the thing assembled, and then when I went to wheel it into the bedroom, it was like clonk, and it didn't fit because I didn't measure it. Then I had to take the whole thing apart and put it together again. Jesus put the whole universe together once, and it's still together. He didn't have to redo it. Are you dazzled? Are you amazed? Do you believe it? Jesus assembled my world. When you think of the wonder of nature and when you think of the changing of the seasons and when you look up at the night sky and try and fathom what you see, the Bible says Jesus put it all together. Why should I live for him? This was no ordinary man. This was our creator. Our solar system alone, I read in the Vertical Church book, that if if you hopped into a space car and traveled at 65 miles an hour and tried to reach outside the last planet in our system, which is Pluto, it's still a planet. I learned it as a kid, and I'm not allowing the scientists to take it out. Pluto, you go outside from Pluto, guess how long it would take you? 13,000 years. Just to explore out past our solar system, then you factor in that there's 100 billion stars in the Milky Way. And then scientists guesstimate that there's 50 billion galaxies and then Christ put it all together. Hey, if you believe that, that's an encouraging truth. You feel like you don't have the power? You feel like you don't have the stamina? You're not going to make it to the end? You just look at who he really is and you're like, he does? He put the whole thing together. All right, what's next? It says this, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. All right, so Jesus is God revealing Himself to me. He's the rightful owner of everything. He assembled my world. Jot this down. Jesus shows me the glory of God. He shows me the glory of God. Well, what does that mean? Well, glory is what emanates from God. It's what displays His invisible unsurvivable 
being. No one can see God and live. And so what emanates from God is power and His beauty. That's all called His glory. And Jesus shows me the glory of God. Why? Well, because He's made of the same substance as God. See, in the Old Testament, Moses, he got to go into the presence of God. And then what happened? He came out and he was like a glow worm. Remember those growing up? He, he like glowed, not in the dark, in the daytime. And so they made him put this, they, he was freaking out the kids. So they made him put on like this scarf because he, you know, he's, but then it faded. He had to go into God's presence and then, and then he'd come back out. But on the mountain of transfiguration, Jesus walked up, with Peter, James, and John, and Moses and Elijah, and what happened? He bursts into light, brighter than the sun. It comes out of his skin. Why? Because he's God the Son. And then the cloud of God's glory comes down after Jesus is shining and God says, this is my Son whom I love. Listen to him. Categorically different than Moses. Light doesn't come out of the skin of normal people. Jesus shows us the glory of God. Literally burst into light. He's therefore more than a teacher. He's more than a great guy. He's more than a moral example or a social revolutionary. Jesus is God revealing God to man. He's the glory of God and the exact imprint of His name. Why should I live for Him? It's not getting me anywhere. Remember who He is. In verse 3, it goes on to say this, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Jot this down. Jesus holds my entire world together. He holds my entire world together. The Bible claims that Jesus currently sustains the cosmos. Like, if, if he were to sneeze wrong and take his hand off the wheel, the whole thing would just dissipate. He upholds the universe. And the way he does it, he's not in this control room like, you know, oh, i got to pull these levers and push this button. It says by the word of his power, which like the image is like the same way you order your Starbucks is like you pull up and he, like with the word of his power, he's just like, son, keep shining. And it's like, yeah, boss. With, with his vocal cords, he keeps the world running. Do you know that every second, do you know how much energy our, our own sun, just one of many stars, do you know how much power it takes? Do you know how much power is released by our own sun? I was amazed by this. If you were to build a contraption that can surround the sun and capture all of the energy it lets off in a single second, it's one second, and you put it in like a jug, and then you brought it back to earth, you could power every energy need globally for 500,000 years. You'd put NICOR out of business, you and your little jug. You, ComEd? No, you go to door to door. Hey, I got a new energy program you want in? 500,000 years, you could take the energy needs of the world in one of the sun, one second. Jesus does that every second with billions of stars. Hey, maybe you feel like, I can't hold my life together. I can't hold my marriage together. I can't hold my family together. I can't hold my job together. I can't hold my church together. I can't, ho I can't hold my world together. That's a cry for encouragement. And here the author of Hebrews says, look at Christ. Look at what he's doing. 
Hey, he could hold your world together. He's doing an okay job with the universe. Sun just, again. You see how that connects? What I believe about Christ? Why should I live for him? Well, he shows me the glory of God. He holds my entire world together. Going on in verse 3, it says, After making purification for sins, and that's a nice passing comment. Oh, and by the way, he took care of every sin of every human at the cross after making purification for sins. So jot this down. Jesus died to purify me of all sin. He died to purify me of all sin. When he died on the cross, he wasn't there for his own sin. He was there for your sin and mine. And he was nailed to the cross and the very wrath of God was poured out on him. Why? Well, because spiritually, you can't see this, but the Bible says that when, when, when God looks into your heart, okay, Matthew, so I can't see this, but when God looks into your heart, he says he sees you're stained with sin. It's red like blood. It's like somebody took a container of fruit punch and poured it all over your soul, and it is red, guilty, shameful. You can't get rid of it. And then Christ dies on the cross, and it's the blood of Jesus that washes away your sins to make you white as snow. It's one way God tries to communicate to you that you have a sin problem you can't fix. It's a stain that won't come out. But when Christ died on the cross, if you come to him and ask him for forgiveness and repent, he washes all of your sins away. That's called purification for sin. And he did that once and for all at the cross. He died, he was buried, he was raised in glory. And you can't get rid of even one of your sin. You can't even take one line item off of your record sheet. And it's all being written down. You'll account for your life one day. That's why we need a Savior. Why should I live for Christ? Jesus died to purify me of all sin and no one else can do that. And then it says this, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So jot this down, Jesus is the rightful king of my life. Only he sits enthroned as the rightful king of the universe He sat down, risen and glorified, enthroned. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He, therefore, should be the one that we follow. All right, so here's the first point in a nutshell. Hebrews 1 teaches that Jesus created everything. He owns everything. He sustains everything. He reveals everything about God, purifies everything stained by sin, and rules over everything in heaven and on earth. Hey, why should I live for him? Do you want more answers? See what happens when I get two weeks away from preaching? I come back and I've got a lot to say. We could spend the whole morning on the person of Christ. Are you convinced? Is it worth it tomorrow to wake up and go one more lap? Think of who he is. Think of what he's done. All right, now the second question seems to flow right out of the first. All right, I'm convinced. Convinced? Why should I? Okay. So how, how do I? How do I? Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. These are like bookends that we're putting around the series, Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 12. <clears throat> how do I? I'm ready. Hebrews 12.1 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, 
looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may, get this, the whole point, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Okay, how do I? How do I? Here's the main point. Jot this down. This is the main point of the whole book. Run the race with endurance. Run the race with endurance. Verse 1. And the other points just kind of show us how this first one happens. When Jesus calls you to live for Him, He describes it as a race and says run. The Greek word for run is agon. We get the word for agony from this word for run. How many of you hated running in high school? You, when I would run in high school, I'd run, and I'd, you know, as soon as I'd start running the mile, I'd get this cramp, same spot every time. You know? And so then I'd be like, oh, I got the cramp, and try to run. And then I'd get lapped by the people on the track team. And I'm like, I'm going to trip you. But if I do, I'm going to run out of energy. And so then we grow up, and we get out of high school, and then we go to the gym, and we get on the treadmill, right? But even there, you're running on the treadmill, <laughs> And you look over and, you know, Mr. Athlete over here has his treadmill on like an incline of five and he's running at a rate of 12 and you're like, I'm going to trip you. And, but you don't because then you'll get kicked out of the gym and then you won't get in shape. and Agony. Jesus is honest about what he calls us to do. Run the race and then it requires endurance. And the word for endurance is hupomene, which is a compound word. Stay under so the very things that make you want to quit uh, and the things that make you want to stop or slow down or run and just run away he's like no those are the very things i'm going to use to build you as my disciple you have to stay under and everything god wants to get into your life demands that you stay under the yoke of Christ for discipleship. But if you bail and compromise and run away or bow out, the discipleship stops. You're on the sidelines. So it's a race that requires endurance. And the Bible's honest about the demand of Christ. It's a race. It requires steady determination. No looking around at the world, jealous of what they're doing, what they're getting away with, how their life is going. No more looking back to your past. Why am I here when I could be there? The old life calling me back. No more. Running the race with endurance. How does it happen? Well, it says in verse 1, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. All right, this is great. So jot this down. Learn from their example. Learn from their example. So here's the picture. The picture is like, I'm running my race, right? And this is as fast as I'm going to go for you. I'm, this is it. And you're, okay, so pick your favorite Old Testament character. Go ahead. Who are you going to be, Glenn? Who are you going to be? Pick. Anybody you want. Yeah, who are you going to be? All right, good. You got one? You got one? All right, now you're in character. So now I'm running, but you've got to cheer me on. You're not doing a good job. Okay, okay, okay. But I'm not playing my part right because I'm a discouraged, floundering believer. So how would you yell if I'm like this? You're still not doing a good job. 
I'm going to fall over. <laughs> okay, okay, I can do it. Good, good. All right, now that's what this whole chapter is about. It's like that's what God's doing for you. You're like, <gasps> and he's like, all right. And then imagine if like Moses, like there's a week where Moses ran up and he got like ran a lap with you. He's like, all right, listen, I'm right here. I want to remind you what God did for me, all right? We're going to run this next lap together. And each week, God's going to point to one of his people. It's like they're each taking a week and they're going to come up and be like, Will, you can do this. Remember what he did for me? And then Moses goes back into the crowd, you know, and then outruns David. And it's like, hey, listen, remember what God did for me? That's the image that we're immersing ourselves in for the next year. And it's all because God wants you to be encouraged. So learn from their example. As these people week by week run up, what did God do for them? What did God do through them? What did God do through them even though they were who they really were? They were ordinary people. We're going to learn from their example. They are witnesses to us and their lives also witness our faith. All right, so it says learn from their example, but then it says this. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. If we're going to run serious, if we're going to run well and finish well, jot this down. Don't just... Learn from their example, but cast aside every hindrance. Write that down. Cast aside every hindrance. Ask yourself this. There's two little parts to this. What is slowing you down? What is the weight that's slowing your race down? The word used here is just kind of bulk or mass. It's not really bad in and of itself. It's just kind of heavy. And it's, it's not maybe bad on its own, but it's bad because what it's doing to your walk with Christ. What is weighing you down? What is, like, what would you do if I got up and here I am about to run my race and it's your job to encourage me and you saw me wearing a, a backpack that, had a, that was full of bricks? What's the first thing you would yell to me? Hey, dummy, you're wearing a backpack full of bricks. You're not going to go far fast. Take off the backpack. All right, so God is saying to you, you've got things in your life that may be weighing you down that don't need to. Well, what would be some examples? Well, just on my short list, I think some things that weigh us down would be past hang-ups, unresolved conflict with a church, with an individual, maybe even a present conflict. You just won't resolve it. You don't know how to resolve it, but nothing slows you down like unresolved conflict. What else? I would say bad influences in your life. Picking the wrong friends. Being around the wrong people who are dragging you to the wrong places. Who are saying the wrong things. and They're bad influences. They are slowing you down. They're hanging on your back as you're trying to run. What else? I would say polarizing theology. Getting all obsessive and worked up about a polarizing theology. I love theology. But some people want to win you more to their system of theology than they do to the gospel. And listen, getting all militant and obsessive about a particular brand of theology can cripple you. It won't always, but it could. It could be the thing that is slowing you down in your discipleship. What else? I would say refusing to find a church home. Wandering aimlessly from church to church. Oh, it's been 10 years and we really haven't found the right one. Oh, you're going to have a lot of friends in heaven. No church is filled with people you want to spend even a year with, huh? Wow. Hey, 
No church home wandering without any accountability in your life. It's going to slow you down. These would be things that you have to decide to cast aside. Hey, do you feel like you've been jogging up a sand dune for the past year? You feel like you're getting nowhere with the Lord? There's some things that are weighing on your back. And God says, you want to live for Christ? How do you do it? You want to run with endurance? Hey, you've got to cast aside everything that's slowing you down. And then it says this. It says, and the sin which clings so closely. This is real picturesque. You know, back then they didn't have like these spandex running suits, right? Like they all wore robes. So if they wanted to run, they would like kind of, you know, bring it up and tie it off. And, but but this, is a, this is a picturesque word of like the sin clinging so close. Like you're just wearing the full robe. And imagine if you showed up to a marathon and you were like, you're like in a Snuggie. Do you own a Snuggie? No? Good. I think more highly of you now. If you had one, though, and you showed up to run a marathon, and you had your little slippers, and you know what? People would be like, what, what are you doing? You, you don't run a marathon like that. And now the Word of God looks into your life, and man, there's that sin you're holding on to, and you're, it's like clinging to you, and you, it's like you're wearing it, and you're going to run like that? You've got to cast it off. You're not going to get anywhere with that in your life? What's tripping you up? What's the puddle you keep stepping in? What's the disobedience you refuse to find victory over? It's clinging to you like a robe. It's clinging to you like a garment. You won't run fast. You won't run well. You might not finish unless you let it go. Hey, learn from their example. Hey, cast aside every hindrance. And finally, fix your eyes on Jesus. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. See, he's now depicted as like the the championship runner. His race was the one that allows us to finish victorious, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Hey, with your eyes on Christ, what do you see? The way he ran. He's an example, but he's not only an example. It, he's the founder of our faith. He's the one who laid it all out so that we can even run. He's, he's the perfecter of our faith. So that he's right there, stride for stride, helping you finish. It's almost like, so Pat, he's, he finished the race. He's the amazing example champion. Because we're on his team, we're going to get the gold, right? But it's like he comes back to you and he puts the medal on you already and he's like, hey, glory's waiting for you. Run like a champion. Run. Because it's waiting for you. And then you look down and you see it. You realize you're not earning it. I'm not going to be impressive with my run. Christ already made me, though, a finisher and a champion. But I'm going to watch him run like him. I'm going to look at those Old Testament saints and learn from them. And I'm going to finish well. That's this call. That's this chapter. That's what this is designed to do. The story of Cliff Young was moving. Do you know that the Cliff Young way of running is now called the Young Shuffle? It's been adopted by several ultra-marathon runners because it's actually considered more energy-efficient than the way they were running. At least three champions of the Sydney to Melbourne race have used the shuffle to win the race. 
Furthermore, if you were to go and rub the Sydney to Melbourne race today, nobody who wants to win it sleeps. If you want to win it today, you've got to run it like Cliff all the way through the night. Hey, listen, Cliff changed the way this race was run. Each week, the stories that we hear are going to be about common folks who just ran with endurance. And each week, as we see their example, God's going to be encouraging us to go one more lap, and then one day we break the tape in glory, and then we see what it's all been about. For now, let's commit this series to the Lord in prayer together. Father, I'm so grateful for what you've done. In putting chapter 11 into the book, you you encourage us. Father, my prayer is that each individual life that we study would touch us. Each individual life would fill our tank and give us the stamina we need just to go one more week. Lord Jesus, we know that when we consider who you are, when we consider what you've done, Lord, we can make it. We can run the race. We can finish. We know that heaven awaits us. So going into this year, do amazing things in the heart of your people through your word. Speak to us, Lord. Help us to press on. We pray this in Jesus' name.